Good morning. Bill stole my um, joke about counting your fingers and toes, so I'm not going to do that one. Hey, if you guys will turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to continue in our grounded series. Uh, and as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 13, I want to pose a question to you. And that question is, what if the Beatles actually got it right? What if the Beatles actually got it right? And so now at this point you're going, what in the world is he talking about? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing you a little ditty, okay? All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Yeah, good job. You're awake, you're here, you're ready. But what if that's actually right? What if love is actually all that you need? I believe that we can make a case this morning from the scriptures that that is true. That love is what we need. And as we turn from 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 13, we have a whole chapter dedicated to love. And if you're here this morning and someone's dragged you to church because it's 4th of July weekend and you guys stayed up way too late last night shooting off fireworks till 1 in the morning and they said, because we did that, we're going to come to church and you're here and you're not usual at church, you still might have heard of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because most people have been to a wedding. And what happens at weddings? They drag someone up on the stage and they say, hey, you're going to be a part of this and you're going to read this. And they read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And it is this great passage about what love is. And here's the two sides of that. One is if you actually were to do those things, if, if you were to understand that love is patient and love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, and you were to apply those in your marriage, your marriage would go really, really well. But here's the dirty little secret about 1 Corinthians 13. It has nothing to do with marriage. Absolutely nothing. You see, 1 Corinthians 13 comes right on the heels of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And Paul is saying, hey, every person who belongs to Christ has been given a spiritual gift by the Spirit of God. And it's used to build up the church and we all have different gifts, just as a body all has different parts and it works together. Every one of us has a different, unique, special gift that we've been given to build up the body of Christ. But the Corinthians did with gifts what they did with a lot of other things. They used it to divide. You see, from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, we get some follow Peter, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. And issue after issue after issue, Paul shows how the church is dividing amongst itself. Paul says, brothers and sisters, that's not how it should be. We should not be divided. We should be unified. And I'm going to take a little tangent from talking about spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk about what love is. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, we find that Paul has a little formula for us. And that formula is this. Gifts plus no love equals nothing. Gifts plus no love equals nothing. He starts in verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, get used to that phrase, he's going to use it three times, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If 
by speaking the tongues of men and angels. You see, we, we have different instances of these gifts in the scriptures. The tongues of men. We have uh, at the Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down, we have the apostles given a special gift to speak in dialects so that people in the audience could hear. And it says that men and women would hear the scriptures in their own language. We're able to respond to the gospel. So it was a spiritual gift. And we have tongues of angels, the prayer language that some people had a gift to speak in. We're going to talk more about tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But these were viewed as super spiritual gifts. And these are people who had them would view themselves on a different level. This is one of the problems going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, if you have one of these super spiritual gifts, but have not love... You are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if they would give me a drumstick, I would walk over to the cymbals over here and show you what, the, what it means. But I'm not allowed, I'm not an authorized user of the drumsticks. Because I can't do anything productive with it. If I were to go over there, all I would do is make noise. And it would be so much noise, you'd probably want to leave. And that's the point. The point is, if you have these spiritual gifts, but you can't put love with it, it's just noise. It's just a gong. It's useless. Gifts plus no love equals nothing. We go from super spiritual gifts in verse 1 to what I call super smart gifts in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, if, if I can look at God's word and I can make sense of what's going on and I can communicate that to other people, if I, if I am filled with all the knowledge in the world, if I have this huge brain that can just tabulate all this information so that I can communicate anything that I want to you guys, but I cannot communicate it in love. It's nothing. If I have faith as to remove mountains, you see here he's, he's alluding to Jesus. And Jesus said, if, if you have this faith, you can look at a mountain, you can say, cast yourself into the sea and it will do it. That faith has tremendous power. But if you have this tremendously powerful faith, but have no ability to use it to love your fellow brothers and sisters, he said, you are nothing. It doesn't matter if you have the super spiritual gifts. It doesn't matter if you have the super smart gifts. If you cannot love. In verse 3, we have the super generous. He says, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing you see, Paul says you can give without loving. You can give away all you have. You can take your, your time and your talent and your treasures and you can give them away. But if you do it for yourself and not for other people, Paul says you don't gain a thing from it. He says if you deliver your body up to be burned, if you become a martyr, if you give yourself away, but you don't have love, you gain nothing. Paul is looking at the church. He's looking at really the story of all churches. And he's saying, you have gifts, you have stuff, you have knowledge. And if you have all of that, but you're not caring for one another, it is meaningless. Gifts plus no love equals nothing. 
And so Paul goes from what is not to what it is. And now he is going to turn and he is going to define love for us. And so in the middle of your notes, there's a giant heart, right? You weren't expecting to see that this morning. No, you're not making a valentine for someone. What you're going to do is we're going to take notes this way. When the Bible says that love is something, I want you to write that inside of the heart. What, what is a positive statement of what love is? When it says love is not, I want you to write that on the outside. I just want you to have a visual of how Paul defines love. So the first one he says in verse 4, he says, love is patient. We say that patience is waiting until later for something that you want now. Paul says that if you love someone, you don't demand what you want when you want it. You work on another person's time schedule. You care more about their needs, their time frame, than you do your own. You're willing to wait. Love is kind. Kindness is one of those words that I always have trouble just defining. Like I have a great definition for kindness. We kind of know it when we see it, don't we? We know when someone's kind to us or when someone's not kind or when someone else is kind to someone. We can kind of see it and go, that, that is kind. My favorite allusion to kindness or my favorite use of kindness in Scripture is Ephesians 4.32. At the end of chapter 4, he's showing all these ways that people are wounding one another. And he says, this is how you should act to them. You should be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving one another. Or you're willing to sacrifice your own rights. You're willing to sacrifice your own value so you can lift someone else up. That's kindness. It says love does not envy. It does not look at someone else or what someone else has and wish that it was yours. Wish that you were in that place. That if you truly value someone else, you do not envy what they have or who they're with, but you love them the way they are. Love does not boast. You see, we have so many times we put ourselves in that seat to get the praise and we want to hear about how good we are and our thumbs are pointing back at us when all of a sudden when it talks about love, it's what about other people are doing. How can I build someone up? Love doesn't boast about me. It boasts about you. He continues. He says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's kind of hard of the subject, isn't it? It does not insist on its own way. How many times is our love conditional? That I will give you X as long as you give me Y. That I have some level of expectation. If you meet that, I will give you the love that you want. Here's the thing with a list like this. You see, you could read this and you can go, Wow, I'm really good at this one and this one. I, I'm not so good on these. So I'm just going to focus on these few it's a pretty comprehensive list. And for us just to take a moment here to be honest. I'm not really good at this list. But this is really, really hard. What Paul is doing is he's setting a standard. He's saying this is what love is. This is what we should be aiming for. You're not going to find this and go, hey, I'm perfect at this. No, this is something that we are working towards because we do insist on things our own way. We are irritable and resentful. Think about the 17th time your kid comes and asks you for the same thing over and over again. And, you know, it's really easy the first time to go, hey, hey, no, 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 we're not going to do that one, buddy. Uh, no, 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 hey, we're not going to do that. Hey, you know, hey, you already asked. I said no. And then you're like, no. 
wants to be an irritable, right? At some point, we're putting our well-being, our comfort, our satisfaction above someone else. Paul says love is not irritable, is not resentful. And then there's this, this one, verse 6. It says, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. The way I memorized that growing up was it does not keep a record of wrongs. And that one's always really convicting for me. See, I've got this library in my head of books that I can remember things that happened to me and things that people have done to me. I don't really seem to have such good records on the ones that I've done to others. We tend to keep a record of wrongs. But it says not to do that. It says rejoices with the truth. You see, here's the truth. The truth is that inside the church, we are family, we are brothers and sisters, and everyone is someone for whom Christ died. And if He loved them enough to die for them, we should love them and rejoice in that truth and not just keep a record of wrongs, not rejoice in wrongdoing. Paul ends with these four really positive phrases. He says, love bears all things. It takes things on its back. It carries a burden. It's willing to be put on and put upon. Love believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. We're given here a perfect picture of love. And we have to understand that there's only one person who's done this perfectly. And that is our God. Our God is the one who looked down at us and saw our imperfections. We saw all the, way this, all the ways that we don't love well and said, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to give my one and only son. And he is going to come and love you so much that he is going to lay down his life in your place for your sin. That he willingly would come and die so that we could be forgiven and made right with God. This is the standard of love that we are to shoot for. And because we have been greatly loved by this God who sent His Son, who is willing to risk it all, to give it all for us, we now are in a spot where we can risk it all to give it all to one another. So Paul has said, the way that you have treated one another, it needs to go. This needs to be what defines you. The love of a father and a son for his people is the love that you should have for one another. And now Paul's going to give us the why. We always want to know the why. So our last point is taken right from 1 Corinthians 4.8. The last one is this. Love never ends. The reason that we are to love is because it never ends. He continues in verse 8. He says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. All these things that divide you, all these things that are coming between you, all these divisions, they're going to go away. Tongues will go away. Knowledge is going to go away. In the sense, we're all going to be brought to the same point at one time. Right now, I have a seven-year-old, and if we were to play trivia, I would probably win in almost every category because it's okay that I have more knowledge than a seven-year-old. But at some point, I'm not going to be more knowledgeable than him. We're all going to be brought to this place of perfection. Paul shows us this in 9 and 10. He says, For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Everything we're doing, we're doing half. We don't have full knowledge. We don't have full gifts. We're getting along the best that we can. But in the midst of this time, we're not supposed to look at our differences. We're supposed to love. 
It says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. There's a lot of interpretation out there of what the referent is. What does it mean when the perfect comes? But I take it that it's when Jesus comes back. When he comes back and he rights every wrong and he restores us to the way we were meant to be, we will see in full. In verse 11, he says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. That's the part. But there's more that comes. He says, now that I'm a man, I gave up childish ways. I no longer act that way. I no longer act in the way that I only know part. Now I've become a man, I know more in full. He says, we need to grow in our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing in life. We need to act like men and women. He completes that thought in verse 12. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I have a picture here on the screen, and this is of Corinthian bronze. And see, we've been spoiled by our mirrors. If we go into our homes and we look in our mirrors, we'll see every imperfection and every reality in that mirror. We can see clearly, but this is what their mirrors would have looked like. It was bronze. And you could look at it. You wouldn't see a great picture. You could kind of see a reflection, but it's dim. And so when Paul says, you look in a mirror, you see a dim reflection, he's saying one day you won't have this dim reflection of what life is supposed to look like. One day you will know in full and you will understand what it means to love fully. He completes this thought in verse 13. He says this. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When I was growing up, the way I heard this verse was, and now three things remain, faith, hope, and love but the greatest of these is love. And that always struck me. Like, why, why is it greater than the other two? Well, this is why I think it's greater than the other two. You see, right now we are a people of faith and hope and love. And right now I have faith. And my faith is that there is a God that I have never actually seen, but I believe loved me to the point where he sent his one and only son. And that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again. And by believing in Him and Him alone, I will go to heaven one day where He is preparing a place for me. This is my faith. That is the gospel. I am holding on hopes to that more than anything else. You see, one day I'm going to be standing there, as Paul says in verse 12, face to face. And I will be in front of my Savior. And I won't have faith anymore because I will have sight. See, Hebrews 11 said, faith is being sure of what you cannot see. Be sure of what you hope for. I'm sure that day is coming where my faith will be sight. You see, we have hope, right? You walk out into our streets, you walk into our schools, you walk into our ball teams, you walk into any environment of life and you see the brokenness. You see the effects of sin and illness and death and destruction on this world. We've all been touched by it, we've all been scarred by it, and we long for a day that is better. We long for a day when the Savior is going to come and wipe every tear from every eye. We long for a day where there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more destruction. We long for a day where we will be with our God. But there will be a day that comes where that's not a hope, that will be a reality. There will come a day where hope is realized. There will be a day where faith is sight and hope is realized. And what does that leave? It leaves love. Love is the thing that will never end. We are called to love now and we will be loving for the rest of time. 
And when we are before his throne worshiping him, we will be loving him in fullness. So what do you do with a message like this? Because it's really a simple message, right? It's, it's not very hard to read the text and understand, oh, Paul wants us to love. There's 13 verses on what love looks like and what we should do. Where do we go from here? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gave some instruction on what was next. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with your heart and your soul and your strength. He says, these things need to be upon your hearts. And that's what we have to do. We have to take these things and put them on our hearts. But then he says, you need to teach these things to your children. You need to talk about them when you sit down and when you get up and when you're on your way. And when, you, when, when you're gathering together, you talk about these things. You reflect on these things. There's a reason why in the Psalms he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so what I want to challenge you guys to do today is to take these next few verses that we're going to talk about them and find a way to meditate on them, to dwell on them, to get them inside of you so that what overflows out of your heart, what comes out, is love. So the first passage I want to look at is found in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You could find a similar passage in Deuteronomy 6. You could find one in Luke chapter 10 and Mark chapter 12. But I've always loved the one in Matthew. Because the Pharisees and the scribes, they've come up to Jesus. And they're trying to, they're trying to trip him up. And they're trying to see what he thinks on issues. And they say, Jesus, how do, you, how do you boil all this down? How do you boil all the law and the prophets? How do you boil down to as simple a phrase as possible? Jesus said, oh, this is what you say. You say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the great commandment. It's the first commandment. And the second is like it, and he quotes Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he has a little interesting phrase he adds to the end. He said, by doing this, you fulfill all the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is a very cute way of addressing the entire Old Testament. He says, everything that you find in the law, everything that's there is summed up by loving God and loving others. That is it. That is all you're called to do. There's not all these rules. There's one. Love God, love others. Love Oh, well, that's not true. It says that I'm not supposed to lie. Well, yes, if you love someone, you will love them enough to tell them the truth. Well, I'm not supposed to steal. Well, if you love someone, you're not going to take their stuff. If you love someone, you're not going to do anything to harm them. You're not going to do anything to put yourself over them. You're going to do everything in your power to put yourself under them to lift them up. That's what it means to love. Jesus said, your greatest call in this world is to love the Lord your God. And the best way to love God is to love others. He'll go on in the book of 1 John to say, you can't love me. This me and Jesus is all I need is, is it's ridiculous. You can't love God without loving those around you, without loving those in the body of Christ. Second passage I want to talk about is in the book of John. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And Jesus is on the, uh, on the uh, not the hill of going to the cross, but he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be betrayed, and he's meeting with his disciples, and he's having this last supper with them, and he's teaching them, and he's pouring out into them. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, 
I think Jesus knows that we like things that are new. We like things that are bright and shiny. And I just have this mental picture of the disciples like leaning forward, getting ready to hear. What is this new commandment? We're going to have the secret sauce now that we can go out and give to the world. And Jesus said, here it is. Here's your new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And I can almost sense this thing of exhale. Like, really? Like, that's what you have to, like, these people that we've been doing life with for three years, like, I have, I, I've smelled them for three years, I've been around their worst parts for three years, and I'm supposed to love them, that is your new commandment, and then Jesus explains it, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There is this reason that we are called to love one another, and it's not so we can just have this happy family that it's really fun to come to. No, he said, the reason that you are called to love your brothers and sisters is that is the way the outside world is going to know that you belong to me. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and they say, I love your Jesus, but I hate your church. I can get along with what he says, but I don't see it lived out in people. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love each other. We are called to go out of our way to treat one another with kindness and with patience. Why? Because it is how an outside world that needs Jesus will understand that we belong to him. A new commandment have we been given, that we love one another. Our last passage is in the book of Romans, and because somebody decided to draw a big heart on their notes, it didn't fit in. Um, but it's Romans chapter 12, and it's verse 10. Romans chapter 12 is one of my favorite, verse, favorite passages in all of Scripture. And Romans 12.10 says this. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. That brotherly is not an accidental word. It denotes family. We are called to love one another like family because that is what we are. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers are supposed to love each other. Brothers are supposed to care for each other. Sisters are called to do the same thing. And here we are, a group of brothers and sisters, and Paul says, love one another. I get, a biggest, I get the biggest kick out of this last phrase. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. You see, I've taken like a million personality tests, and the one thing that they all have in common is my number one strength always comes back the same, so it's probably what it's supposed to be, right? My number one strength always comes back is competition. It has caused me a lot of pain in this world. But here the Bible says compete. Now, not in a scoreboard way. We're not supposed to keep tabs on, oh, look, someone's outdoing one another. They're winning on the scoreboard. But it said you should be in this little friendly competition to see who can outdo one another to show honor. We should be running to grab the door to hold it open because we just want to honor the people we're with. We shouldn't be outdoing ourselves to encourage and pour out and give and do all these things that we have the giftings for. We should be doing everything we can to pour out our gifts on the people of God so that the outside world will come and see who Jesus is. We're called to outdo one another in showing honor. See, I think the Beatles had it right. I really do. I think all we need is love. Now, I don't believe that they were talking about this when they wrote the song. But I still believe it's true. All we need is love. We need to love our God. 
Morning, noon, and night. He gets our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. He gets our best. And when He gets our best, the way that we truly show Him that we love Him is by the way we love one another. The way we elevate each other and put ourselves under so that others can have the place of honor. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the Scriptures say that You are love. And it's true. You are love and you demonstrated your love by not leaving us where we were at, but by having such compassion and such grace for us that you sent the one you love, your one and only son to this earth to pour himself out to demonstrate his love for us. Father, love is that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Father, that is the standard that you have set, that we are to love one another, Father, and we fall time after time after time. Father, thank you for the grace of another chance. Give us the ability to go out and to love. Help us to love our families, to love our kids, to love our wives, to love our parents and our extended families. Father, help us to love those in our schools and our workplaces. Father, help us to love those within the body of Christ. Father, you say the new commandment you give to us is that we love one another. And by the way we love one another, an outside world will come to know who you are. Father, may that be true in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.